Kick the Jukebox is so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the Jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louie Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. Are you okay, Kyle? I'm just so nervous to be doing the podcast. I can't believe we're back. Yeah, I know. This is, I think, episode uh, 31. Wow, so we're still crazy. we're still new to this for sure. Yeah, episode thirty one, uh, thirty of which have been recorded in quarantine. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> totally. That's yeah, we did one true. episode. Uh, we did the Ramones episode three years ago, and then we picked it a bit back up. And that's actually not true. <laughs> uh, subscribe to us on all podcasters of your choice. Rate us and review us. We'd really appreciate it. And we have tons of episodes for you to listen to. Some that were recorded as live radio broadcasts, which was fun. Some of them were recorded from the safety of our own apartments during a world-shifting health event. So, you know, um, same old, same old. Uh, So, yeah, Kyle, uh, how are you doing? How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah. I'm thriving. Uh, Nice. um, Yeah, I, I truly, I think a lot of people have kind of felt this, but, you know, definitely some pros and cons to quarantine. I am the healthiest I think I've ever been. Mm-hmm. I've been running a lot. Um, but then again, I'm also trapped in a um, in my apartment all by myself during the week uh, doing a job, which isn't always so fun. And uh, so, you know, again, pros and cons. Yeah, the for sure. Body, body is great brain is toasted so mm-hmm, mm-hmm, totally yeah weird fuzzy brain but i feel like working on projects like this kind of help keep uh at least me kind of focused and sharp you know a hundred percent yeah um and i think a lot of i mean and also like when i'm not doing my day job like i think i've been writing a lot more than i ever have mm-hmm. and there are some projects that i'm like excited about and i'm actually sinking my teeth into mm-hmm. uh so this quarantine has really been an opportunity to kind of put things in perspective a lot of uh, housework you know getting handy oh actually i i'm doing this fun diy project not to get too off track but i actually this morning i walked all the way to the lows like by Coney Island. Yes. And I bought this huge, like kind of corner molding piece thing. I'm going to cut them up, cut it up and use it to uh, hang my records on the wall. Oh yes. Hang up those <laughs> records. Yeah. So this is pretty cool. And cause I, I was like shopping online for like, you know, just some record shelves that you could buy like display. And they're all like, oh, so expensive. They it's, like, are for they're each pricey. one. It's like 20 bucks. And then mm-hmm. I just bought this thing for five bucks at, Home Depot, and I'm going to cut it up and uh, display some records. Yeah, build some record stands during this time when you have more time. That's Hell a yeah. great idea. Yep. Uh, and you can display a vinyl copy of the album that we're covering today. Yes, here it is. <laughs> Which is, oh, sweet. You've got it. It's John yep. Martin's One World from 1977. Yep. yep. Uh, cool. That's awesome. What uh, have you been... Uh, <laughs> what, have, <laughs> what have you been up to? Um, well... My violas that I'm growing, my viola seeds sprouted this week, uh, which is very exciting. And then I noticed as of today, my basil and my daisies have sprouted. So You know, 
I need to happening. pick your brain. I need to pick your brain about plants because I I kill everything. So I, I need your help. You're probably overwatering them. We should do we a can... we should do four episodes that are each three <laughs> hours long that are a gardening podcast. Yeah, we that would be do... really insane. <laughs> That'll be our uh, yeah our spinoff. So yeah, but you know, for me, uh, in terms of like you know, my quarantine brain, long-term projects have been really hard for me to sort of wrap my head around. Sure. Doing stuff on a week-by-week basis, like what we're doing is really my speed right now, which is yeah. why I really appreciate doing this with you for sure. But oh, yeah. I'm trying to sort of figure out ways to adjust and do some more like long-form writing projects and that kind of mm-hmm. thing, which has been kind of tough for me. Um, but that's understandable because we're all experiencing a slow moving form of trauma. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very true. Yeah. Totally worth just, uh, reiterating that. But yeah, my, my, uh, my other podcast is back on the air after a year long hiatus. Woohoo! XOXO Riverdale, my Riverdale fan recap podcast. So if you want to rewatch or watch the fourth season of a very trashy teen drama with me, and my podcast partner, Kate, you can do a search for that and tune in. We're going to do one episode a week from season four, which just finished. So Hell yeah. Yeah, and I shouted out Kick the Jukebox in the first episode. Nice, you got to so do some cross promo. I need promo. to do some cross promo, the Louis Perlman media empire. <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah, that is Amazing. You know, really just so <laughs> important and, and huge in people's lives. Yeah, Perlman <laughs> Industries. Yeah, oh my God, totally. Importer, <laughs> exporter. <laughs> so kyle what music have you been listening to uh so, this week to get you through yeah, the, the times yes for sure so uh, as everyone knows as our fans especially know last week we covered x's los angeles and we talked a little bit about and mentioned uh one of the side projects of uh some of the x members of x which is the knitters mm-hmm. which was their kind of like country country punk kind of uh, side project and that's an album i have on vinyl that i love 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 it's mm-hmm. called poor little critter on the road and um so you know on one of my morning runs this week i listened to that album again uh and i do actually listen to that album pretty frequently but i've uh so i listen to that album it's great and particularly the song silver wings which is cool. a cover of a merle haggard song lovely and uh i also i bring it up one, it's a great cover, uh, might even be better than the original. And also, I've kind of, uh, cats out of the bag, I've kind of been seeing a lady. Oh, my the, God. On the weekends at quarantine. And, at quarantine, uh, at the quarantine club. At, at quarantine, yeah. And she was kind of encouraging me to learn more sincere uh, songs, because it is true, the only thing I can play on guitar are like jokes jokey songs and joke music so sure i've been learning to like finger pick uh silver wings this week so that oh fuck yeah yeah that's lovely yeah that's great wow yeah romance songs we're gonna talk about i think a hugely romantic song today oh yeah which maybe you should learn i know but you know what the thing about john martin is He's incredibly uh, like complex Drake. guitar wise. Yes, and, and it's like yeah. these insane tunings. Same yes. thing with Nick Drake. It's like impo- mm-hmm. it's like it would be I could learn it and then 
like if I whipped it out to play for someone or a woman or a man and like tried to, I would spend like 20 minutes tuning it before I even got yeah, to play Yeah, you'd be like, it. just give me a moment. Yes, this exactly. Is, this song requires you to tune it. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. I need like a half a capo and yeah. Which is like literally like the nightmare that is man dating a man with a guitar. Exactly. Like, literally. Exactly. It's so I don't funny. I that guy. I've, yeah. I've, I've actually talked about that on the other podcast about how I think my ideal man is a man with a guitar. Uh, and my podcast partner, Kate, she's like, that is nothing I ever want to have happen is have yeah. someone play the guitar for me. Yeah. And something that I think is so funny about that is like what she's talking about when she's talking about that is literally what you're describing. Exactly. Like, just hold on, just sit on the edge of this bed yeah, yeah, for give a me moment. A second. Give, me, give, me, give me a minute, give me a minute. Yeah, like, <laughs> so I get it. I get, I get both points of view there. Yep. <laughs> Well, I know you've been listening to some music this week. No, um, no music. No music for me. Oh, okay. Uh, no, no. Uh, actually, so uh, just uh, I just want to shout them out because these are songs that I have been listening to this week and I've been listening to over the last few weeks. Um, you were talking about delving a little more into power pop last week. Yes, yes, yes. And then I sent you a few songs that are sort of some of my faves. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to just uh, shout them out for a second. Uh, the song Starry Eyes by The Records. Yeah. And uh, What Do All the People Know by The Monroes. So these are two mm-hmm. like early 80s power pop groups that, uh, you know, delving into power pop, I feel like there's some power pop that I really love and some power pop that just doesn't really do it for me. And I've realized that the power pop that I like is sort of veers on the side of being like power pop punk. It is a little more aggressive and sort of tightly wound. Yes. Yeah. That that was the struggle I always had with power pop. I'm like, I want this to have more of an edge. Like either, either it needs to be much sweeter or much more aggressive. I always thought a lot of power pop just kind of like yeah, me- felt a, little, a little bland, a little meandery. Uh, yeah. Agreed, uh, sort of unfocused. Uh, yeah. And I like them, but they are certainly not my faves when it comes to this genre. I feel like uh, this might make some listeners angry. I feel like Big Star is one of those bands that just. I a hundred percent agree. I know, I know I that you hundred percent agree. And there's some big star songs that I like. Like I that don't I've, universally yeah. big star are not the police for me. I will never no. say a good thing about the police on this podcast. But yeah. and there's some big star stuff I like, and I like a lot of Chris Bell's oh, solo stuff, who's a guy from Big Star. We just uh, who, became 10 times, I, 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 I know. we became well, even more good friends than I, I we already know. were. Yeah, yeah. Chris Bell sang a song I fucking love called I Am The Cosmos, which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, Big Star. And then we have bands who are a little less popular, like the Monroes and the, the Records, who just sort of like are so eager to like keep your attention <laughs> in these yeah. pop songs. And I think I like that a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we will have to do a bigger discussion on. Uh, yeah, I think that's one of my like biggest like unpopular opinions of like I don't hate them, but I never understood like the obsession and like worship of Big Star. Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. good band, but not worth this amount of, yeah, of worship. Exactly, exactly, absolutely, yeah. 
But someone who is worth uh, a huge amount of worship. And uh, even more worship than he's gotten. Well, yeah, 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 that's true. Someone who's a little, who's a little underappreciated is John yes. Martin. Yep. The uh, singer, songwriter, guitarist uh, who we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his album, 1977's One World. Yep. So this is uh, a little bit, I'm, I'm newer to, to John Martin, uh, but Kyle, I know you've really loved him for a long time. What, what got you into to John Martin? So I think probably, I, I discovered him, it must have been after college. I think mm-hmm. it probably was a few years ago. We've talked about him on the podcast before yeah. we've covered one song by him in the past. Yes. Yeah. Ex- yep. And so I kind of, um, I probably got through to, you know, I found out about him probably through a recommendation because I, I really like Nick Drake. Mm-hmm. And then um, they were label mates and they kind of, especially early John Martin has sort of a Nick Drake kind of sound um, like er, like British folk. Um, pretty much, yeah, just like British folk sound. Um, also, you know, uses a lot of like very, very technically proficient guitar player um we were talking about earlier you know a lot of very strange uh and unusual tunings um so but yeah through nick drake i probably that's how i found out about john martin and just over the years the more i dig and the more i discover the more i just am obsessed with him and almost everything he's done we'll talk about that yeah that's awesome and so yeah, so you discovered him through Nick Drake, and they are their label mates. Mm-hmm. They're on Chris Blackwell's Island Records together. Yep, yep. I do want to go into it like a small Chris Blackwell. Uh, <laughs> yes, I mean he's a big, big, here. big part of the story. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, sort of. Uh, these are sort of concurrent stories here. So Chris Blackwell is a, a producer and uh, the owner of Island Records at the time, who really was the record label that brought reggae and ska to the masses yep. in the 60s and into the 70s. Yep. Um, and uh, just uh, of note, an early hit for him, uh, which was really the first ska hit song, was My Boy Lollipop by a singer named Millie Small. Mm-hmm. And she just passed away. As of, yeah, just as of like two weeks ago. So oh, wow. th- this is sort of relevant. Um, Blackwell, it's just a little bit about his story because the story is really rather interesting. He was born in England, but mainly grew up in Jamaica. Uh, was, came from a, from a fairly rich family who was able to give him starter money for his record label. The way he got into uh, you know, owning this label and managing this label is he managed uh, jukeboxes in Jamaica Mm. was Mm. one of his uh, few businesses that he was sort of helping to run, which got him in contact with the uh, Jamaican music community. Mm. And he was really falling off the music. And then when he was 21, this is just an amazing story. He was sailing and his boat ran into a coral reef and he had to swim to shore and was like near death's door and was in extreme heat. And he was rescued by a Rastafarian fisherman <laughs> and was nursed back to health by uh, being fed uh, traditional Rasta foods. <laughs> and it got him into Rastafarian culture huh. uh, and then sort of gave him this deep appreciation 
Uh, and then last little story about him, but <laughs> you know, so he ended up producing this album and I think that that really factors into the sound of the album. Last little mm-hmm. story about him is he ended up being the location scout for the James Bond film, Dr. No. Yes. Famously takes place in, in Jamaica. Jamaica. Yes. And then he really enjoyed his time in the film industry and had just started his record label, you know, just like year previous. And he consulted a psychic because he was like, which career path should I choose film or, uh, or being a, you know, owning a, a label and the psychic said, go with music. Uh, it's, you're going to become very successful. And then he, he was, um, she nailed it. She nailed it. She did nail it. Yeah. She had a, she had a 50, 50 shot. She did. And she, she was, it was correct. A, it, it was a one or the other, but yeah, yes, she did get it right. She did get it right. Yeah. So in the meantime, uh, you know, concurrently, because they're around the same age, John Martin is born, grew up in England, uh, was the child of uh, opera singers. Yep. Who divorced yeah, think- pretty quickly, mm-hmm. early yes. on. Yeah. Yep. Yep. No, I was just going to say, yeah, he, he, he kind of was back and forth from England and Scotland. Yeah, and Scotland. I think that's a, yep. uh, and I think he like went to high school in Scotland, and I think that's kind of where he kind of considers home base even though he's more or less lost his accent Mm -hmm. but i think that's a big part of the story because he at 17 he was like i need to make money doing music and made the big trek down to london where he got his start and a funny story his first album was called london conversation Mm -hmm. and he pretty much said he just called it that because he just wanted something with london in the title because people thought anything with london sounded like cool and official yeah more more sophisticated yeah yeah but he does he does come out of the scottish folk scene yeah and it's it's interesting because he really transcended his folk roots so quickly and to you know he was described as a folk artist for his entire career but i Mm -hmm. think that that's such a misnomer for him you know yeah it's so limiting and it doesn't take into account the sweep of his career and which you definitely hear on this album like there are folkier songs and folkier elements which we'll cover but i mean his career was so i mean there was so much development and to bring it back to chris blackwell yeah first of all um you know it started as a label to promote jamaican music john martin was actually the first white artist that Chris Blackwell ever signed. Very cool. And um, and also, uh, but when Chris Blackwell signed him, which is, I think, interesting, he said, you know, I signed John Martin understanding that I'm just going to let him do his thing and kind of, I'm in this for the long haul with him. And he mentioned he kind he wanted to make a lot of albums with him. And he said he kind of signed him like a, like you would a jazz artist, yeah. where you're not signing him to make you know, one hit, you're, you're, you're anticipating like artistic development and, and art and anticipating you, you break their career down into like, uh, phases or, you know, periods. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's great that Blackwell felt like he had space on his label mm-hmm. to nurture an artist like this. Exactly. And it, it just shows what a smart, you know, eye towards development Blackwell had and yeah. also how he was really multifaceted, talented in different ways, yeah. I feel. You know, and 
And the other thing too about One World is that it comes 10 years into his career already. Mm-hmm. And he had been, and he was with uh, Island for the entire time, which is quite a different story than some of the other bands and artists that we've covered recently, where it seems like they've made shifts to larger labels. Uh, you know, when it seems to be the time, like that sort of Death Cab for Cutie's story, yep. you know, or even Cindy Lauper's story as well, you know. Mm-hmm. But really, Martin had a lot of time to uh, just, you know, work on his sound and work with a lot of different producers as well. Yep. Uh, but this album is produced by Chris Blackwell, which is almost sort of like this, I, I feel it's kind of the synergistic coming home moment maybe for both of them, right? Yeah, totally. Um, and I think it's like, a lot of both of their influences are clearly on this album. And, you know, what I've heard about Chris Blackwell as a producer, you know, he wasn't super technically knowledgeable. You know, mm-hmm. he wouldn't be the guy sitting all night on the boards, but he had just an incredible ear and taste. And he brought in all these different influences onto the album. Yep. And he was like, you know, John Martin, which we'll discuss, he's a notoriously, um, He's very set in his ways. Mm-hmm. He's very, very stubborn. Um, he's very independent and does not take notes well. Um, mm-hmm. He also is very temperamental and kind of like uh, an all over the place guy. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, he'll might disappear for a few days kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, but like apparently Chris Blackwell really had his respect and his like he deferred to Chris Blackwell on on a lot of decisions and Chris Blackwell helped, you know, I think bring in a lot of the Jamaican influence and like he, um, Lee scratch Perry, uh, is, you know, helped produce and play on this album. Mm -hmm. Um, and so things like that were definitely a lot of Chris Blackwell's influence. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also for listeners, uh, of this podcast, regular listeners, just to sort of showcase a a bit of a contrast, uh, Blackwell also produced the first B-52s record, Mm -hmm. literally less than a year after he produced this one, and it could not be more different in sound. So it shows that he, you know, and we, um, you know, we covered Cosmic Thing, which is a little later in the B's career uh, Mm -hmm. on this podcast uh, about a year ago or so. So it's like, to me, I think that's really fascinating because... It just shows that he, I think, was able to tap into what made an artist unique and allowed them to, you know, really showcase their sound. Exactly. And I mean, that's kind of the two types of producers. You have like a, you know, like a Phil Spector who, when you do, when you do a Phil Spector, he's as much an artist on the, on the, on the project as the musician. Definitely. Whereas Chris Blackwell is hands off. And he's going to, he's going to defer to the artist and he wants to, you know, write in their voice rather than imposing his own voice. Yeah, absolutely. And it becomes a really wonderful merger in this case. Yep. And, and so, you know, John Martin's sound, uh, before we get into the first song, I think that describing him as a... Folk, I mean, obviously as a folk artist, it's it's incorrect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that describing him as maybe closer to a jazz guitarist, vocalist, yeah. is smarter, is like a better way to describe him. 
How would you describe him if you were, if you sort of were hearing him for the first time and, you know, without sort of like the, like all the, all the uh, criticism that's been done around him, how, how would you choose to describe him? Well, I think it goes back to, you have to talk about which phase of his career because Mm -hmm. he, he was so independent and also so, um, in innovative and experimental. He liked to play around. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, his first few albums, he's very young. He's in London. He's part of the like London folk scene with like a John Renborn and a Burt Janch and people like that. And so he's kind of like this, you know, uh, br- very typical, like British folky troubadour kind of sounds like medieval music you know a little bit um singing about like the gilded lilies and things you know like that whole thing and that's in the 60s yeah um then in the early 70s he he's i would still consider him like a folk uh a, you know a folk singer but he starts to get a little more experimental drift away from that like troubadour type sound and more into like maybe like progressive folk like he, sure. he like uh you know a lot of people consider like his 1973 album solid air to be kind of his masterpiece mm-hmm. um which i like i like i love both albums they're both incredible but they're very different but yeah that's more guitar based mm-hmm. um or like a strictly acoustic guitar and then once you get here i don't even know what to call him on this album because he's so i mean there's like elements of like R&B, there's elements Definitely. of reggae, yeah. there's yep. elements of folk for sure. Um, and then there's like... There's a, we'll there's talk a about, song that's like pretty hardcore bossa nova yep, as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly, like yeah. loungy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like, you know, there's some like proto-ambient shit happening on this thing yeah I, I it's interesting to me that he's not mentioned more in the kind of uh same breath as like a brian eno yeah or or also like king crimson mm-hmm. who i mm-hmm. believe also were signed to island records yeah king exactly so and and brian eno put um some albums out on uh island yeah you know that there is especially on this album sort of an ambient fuzz that mm-hmm. permeates the entire album that makes it fairly dreamlike yes. and i would argue um deeply psychedelic yes in all of like the right ways yes yeah <laughs> um you know because when you use the term psychedelic when it comes to music that can be considered you know people think about like uh, stuff that's a little more excessive, stuff that's a little mm-hmm. more 60s, endless guitar solos that go yes. nowhere, that are actually somewhat unemotional or somewhat showy, that kind yeah. of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, I think, is like psychedelic in a very like contemplative way. Absolutely. I think that's yeah. exactly right. And, you know, I think we're on the record here. Uh, like the song I'm going to cover today breaks a lot of my rules and what I normally like. It's nine yes. minutes long. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of uh, like a droney type sound. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I think the thing is, one, I wouldn't call him like progressive rock in the same, no, you know. No, no. I, I mean, there are progressive that. elements in that he's innovating, but it's yeah. not prog rock. No. And um, I think most importantly is he, like a lot of this are a lot of this album is built on like improvisation over a groove. Like there's always like a groove that 
uh, it doesn't, the album doesn't meander aimlessly and it's not indulgent, which I think is the big thing that can get in the way of like, you know, long songs or like annoying prog rock stuff. Yeah, well put. I agree with that. I think that he had a really good sense of self as an artist mm-hmm. and knew exactly how to edit himself on this record. And that's why it's such a, such a, it's a really satisfying listen For and sure. it's not boring because yeah. a lot of these key terms that we're using are things that we would often describe at least our taste on this podcast as being boring. Right. But that's not the case with this album at all. This is a beautiful, very satisfying album. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. We're breaking all that. our rules today. Oh yeah. We're breaking all the rules. <laughs> no, no, no. This is fairly standard for us. Um, yeah. So uh, let's talk about the first song we're going to cover is this song it's uh, in the later half of the album it's called dancing mm-hmm. and it was also uh one of the singles from the album it was and the so, only it single. was the only single from the album backed yep. with um the first song from the album which is called dealing which well, i yep. fucking love that yeah. it's uh the, the the single was was dealing and dancing so yeah let's <laughs> listen let's listen to a little bit of it beautiful and super Mm -hmm. fun yeah so yeah i I wanted to address this song in particular because i think that it really predicts in a very cool way uh the sort of the yacht rock 80s to Mm -hmm. come um you know there's a huge jazz influence here Mm -hmm. And an R&B influence as well, but it's so smooth and and soft and easy to listen to. Yep. Which I think is super, super cool. Uh, One of the techniques that he used a lot that I just want to talk about here, because I think it's important for the tone of this song and for this album, is it's a lot of um, jazz guitar playing. Mm-hmm. Over top uh, through a fuzz box and a phase yep. and an echoplex. Yep, exactly. Yep. Which makes it just, you know, really kind of veering into the world of the surreal. Totally. I would also argue that there's sort of a laid back nature to the whole album and to this song that, like, c- c- almost puts it in like the category of, of like Jimmy Buffett, but without being mm-hmm. stupid, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. You know, but I, I, I'm having a hard time 
uh, sort of parsing out why I think this is so solid and why I think that a lot of other stuff is so wanky. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I think... um, Well, I think, one, his vocal quality is very unique. Yeah. Um, The way he sings is like... You know, he sings a lot... This is probably... I mean, this is like the most upbeat, uh, lightest song probably on the album. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is, and, I guess, the most singles-oriented song, if you can call it that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but even still, you know, and I, but I think he writes a lot of like uh, kind of offbeat lo- love songs, and just I think one, it's just like it seems a little more offbeat. Yes. Um, it's really groove-heavy, but the the way he's like noodling on the guitar. Um, it's, uh, I think it's just really interesting chord choices. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, I think that jazz element pretty much just means he's, you know, he has all these strange tunings. He has all these strange, like, uh, chord choices. So it just sounds offbeat. It doesn't, it's, it's got a little bit of an edge. It's got, it's a little weird. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And his, and his vocal delivery is, you know, it's gruff. It's aggressive. That's true. That's true. He definitely has a very bluesy quality to his vocals. Yes, for sure. And yeah, and definitely, you know, it, it it's worth noting as well that he sort of has sort of a strange onstage presence as well. Yes. You know? Uh, I, I think yeah. that's a, a, this is a great time to bring that up because, yeah. I mean, he, he sings a lot of like very somber, yeah. Uh, or like very, you know, um, expansive droney kind of music. You know, he he's all over the place, but and like very sincere songs. And then his onstage persona is kind of like the goofy party drunk guy, mm-hmm. you know. And so mm-hmm. it's kind of a bit jarring to watch a show, uh, to like watch a live performance. And but I think that if you look at the lyrics of this song, it's like a fun, light song. Mm-hmm. But what the song is about is pretty much him like justifying his lifestyle to his wife, mm-hmm. being like, "Look, I'm sorry. The 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 lads kept me out all night. I had no choice. I had to stay out and have fun." And I mean, I don't know. I can really relate to that. What? You, I'm shocked to hear that. I'm shocked. And the process of like justifying it, like, sorry, I'm going to be home late. I just like couldn't not have fun tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Kyle Gordon, consummate party animal. Yeah, yeah. And and it, it sort of, I think, the complexity of the song mirrors the complexity. You know, his his complex relationship with you know, substances uh, yes. that he dealt with for his entire life and, yep. and with his relationships with, with both of his wives, which were mm-hmm. pretty tumultuous. Yes. You know, very, very fraught. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, you know, it's kind of all in the song and uh, it's, there's a lot going on under the surface, despite the fact that it's like the most accessible. You know what right. I mean? For yeah. sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I, yeah, you know, you, I understand, you know, that you relate to it because you just you just can't stop partying. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a nut. What can I say? I'm I know I'm crazy. You're crazy. <laughs> You're a nut. Um, yeah. Uh, why don't we talk about Small Hours, which is your track, which is the the closer for the album? Yep. Uh, and it's gorgeous. Let's listen to a little bit of it. Yeah.
so you know for the purposes of this podcast we uh only play about a minute of the song <laughs> and then you know because uh, for copyright reasons and because you know uh we're doing this uh as a form of music criticism so please don't sue us anybody uh and then we let the rest of the song play out underneath so you can still get a feel of it as we talk about it but with this one i really recommend that you just look it up and listen to the entire thing yeah. because hearing a minute of the song doesn't really give you know it's a it's a 9 minute long song so it doesn't really uh give you the full flavor of mm-hmm. the fact that uh, it has a really interesting ebb and flow and a build throughout it that like i think is sort of an important part of the story of the song you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah so yeah this is a beautiful long instrumental end to this album yeah, with a Why little bit of vocals in the middle. Yes, that's... Oh, yeah, that's right. There are a few vocals in the middle. That's right, yeah. right in the middle of it. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's mostly instrumental. But mostly, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's an instrumental. So wh- why don't we hate this? We Wh- we don't like this stuff at Kick the Jukebox. Why <laughs> Why do we like this so much? I like this too. Uh, yeah. Why don't we hate this? <laughs> what, beautiful question. Why don't we hate this? One, I think this is like exactly what we were talking about. This is the proto-ambient, like... Uh, music for airports comes out a year after this. Yeah. Um, this is, it's also a beautiful way to end the album. It's not, again, it's not indulgent. It's, it's like a drone and like this whole album takes you on a journey. Like this is the best like drug album ever. Like you get fucked up and listen to this album. What I will get fucked up on anything. Like, and I mean, you could also enjoy it sober, but like, <laughs> uh, I mean, this, yeah, is... I surprisingly enjoyed it sober this week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I mean, like it's, I mean, it's just also so gorgeous and this is a good time to mention. Cause I think it comes through clearly. This entire album was recorded outdoors and, um, he, and on this album, they recorded it on a lake mm-hmm. in like northern England or something. And on this on this track, you can hear um, like geese and like the sounds of the like waves on the lake. Um, and it's just like so gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, it it just is like it just takes you on a journey. It's like one of those great songs that like you you just zone out you bliss out yeah you sort of get lost in it i would say yeah totally also worth mentioning when it comes to this song as well he is considered one of the big big influences inspirations for the entire genre of trip hop Mm -hmm. which was you know really popular in the 90s and early 2000s in england where he is from bands like Massive Attack and Portishead that Mm -hmm. sort of use, uh, you know, sort of looping psychedelic uh, tracks underneath of like more jazz influenced uh, singing, you know, is how I would describe trip hop to the best of my ability while being like a little reductive about it saying like (laughs) and that's what that is like no yeah but but you can hear it here you know you can really hear it here yeah uh and and that's so you know that's so interesting um that he you know the he sort of touched i think so many different types of uh musicians 
who who worked with him mm-hmm. uh, and who uh, listened to his stuff. Um, also, uh, you know, on this entire album and working with him for his entire career was Steve Winwood. Yeah. Who's it's important just to discuss who, you know, is a very famous keyboardist. Uh, got his start with the Spencer Davis. Bring me your higher love. Yeah, higher love, which is a, a great <laughs> And Traffic, song. which is, uh, they're also on Island Records, too. Yes. I mean, that's how they got him, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Winwood really loved working with him, and I feel like they were kindred spirits just sort of on different instruments in terms of thinking about how to push what they were doing in new and, and creative ways. Uh, and they kind of had strange brains. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> you know? and, and I think like a lot of, um, I think one, I think Steve Winwood, I think was influenced by John Martin in a lot of ways and took mm-hmm. the template that John Martin laid out and made it more commercially successful and more accessible to like a mainstream public, particularly on the album, which is a good album, not as good as this, but a good album, Arc of a Diver by mm-hmm. um, Steve Winwood, which came out a few years after that. this. But um, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people took the John Martin template, in, especially in the UK, and just ter- made it more accessible. Yeah, another person who did that, uh, you know, who really made what he was doing really mainstream was Phil Collins as well, mm-hmm. who worked with John Martin and sort of comes from the same like songwriting playbook as well, but a little more accessible. Yeah. And this her. sort of this sort of goes into talking about like John Martin in the eighties. Yeah. Where you feel like he sort of had a real crash, right? In terms of the quality of his work. What do you think happened? Yeah. I mean it's very interesting. I think for, for a lot of people kept trying to, they were waiting for when is the big John Martin hit going to happen? Yeah. When is the big John Martin hit album going to happen? And it never happened because he, he, he could not be contained. He could not be, um, that sounds so like, no, I love it. <laughs> Nick sucky, but, uh, like, no, no it just I mean, shows that you love him. It's yeah. Great. <laughs> I mean, he's, I really do. But I mean, truly, I think it was also like, like the, the, his 1980 album, grace and danger, which is gorgeous. That was supposed to be his first album where they're like, okay, this is going to be a hit. And he had just gotten divorced and he wrote this insanely personal and very, very sad album that just was too sad for people you know there kept being all these times when he was gonna um break out and then also i think in the 80s he just followed his gut and pretty much did whatever he wanted to do and i think that took him down a lot of roads with like synthesizers he pretty much ditched his guitar throughout the 80s and personally i don't really like any of the stuff that he did uh typified uh, mostly by the album Sapphire, um, where he's it's pretty much just like supposed to be his like synth pop album, but he he's not good at synth pop. He just mm. it didn't it didn't work for him. It's not his um, thing. Yeah, it's not his thing. But I think no one could tell him not to do it because he just he he did what he wanted to do. Here's a question that I you might have the answer to that I do not. Do you think he is one of those artists? who was incredibly groundbreaking at a certain point in time, then other artists sort of caught up with him and then he fell behind that he was sort of struggling to catch up. And maybe that's why he never quite 
found his footing in the in the industry as a whole. I think that could be right. I think that could be right. But I, I, I hesitate to say that only because I think what he was doing in the 80s, it wasn't like him trying to sell out and couldn't or him trying to make a pop album but couldn't. Mm-hmm. It was him, like, I think his, he got interested, he, he's always been really interested in, like, the technology and, it, like, new technology. And I think him in the 80s, I think, was just him kind of getting into synthesizers and kind of getting into a lot of the new technology. I think a lot of this happened to a lot of bands. You could, you, you know, you could make the argument that this happened to Devo too, right? They just got, <laughs> certainly not. How dare. <laughs> but you know, Devo, like Devo doesn't have a stinker in its entire discography. <laughs> no, but like, you know, kind of getting obsessed with the technology. And I think it might, it might, it very well could have been like trying to keep up with his peers. I think a lot of artists who were, did their best work in the seventies struggled with the new landscape in the eighties and the new technology. But Mm. the only difference I make is I just get the sense from what I've read is that he was genuinely interested in Mm -hmm. that technology. I just think the music he made, it just didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. It it maybe just didn't have the, you know, this, this album that we're listening to today already has 10 years of him figuring himself out as a guitar artist. Yes. You know what I mean? And then, I mean, and it's like yeah. he is such an amazing guitar player. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, that him figuring it all out again on a different instrument, maybe right. that progression, if he had, you know, maybe, maybe if he had still, if he was still alive now, maybe what we would be hearing if he was still interested in synthesizers right. would be, you know, um, would be sort of reach this level of, of like uh, sort of singular artistic vision that this album does, you know? Totally. Uh, yeah. He passed away in 2009 uh, after several health problems, including oh having to have his leg amputated. Yeah. Which sucks. I mean, he didn't take care of himself. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he had, he, they told, you know, he, I think he died at 60. Um, he also broke his neck once cause he drove his car into a cow um Ugh, terrible he, yeah he had um uh i mean he just smoked drank all his life did drugs um by yeah, the way on this album uh, everyone was on opium that is makes so much sense yeah. this is such an opiates album <laughs> yeah it is it explains so much i wish i had uncovered that in my research it is <laughs> such a such a low-key sort of drifty dreamy album and yep. it has the fingerprints of opiates all over it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, let's listen to the final track from the from the record mm-hmm. uh, that we're going to talk about. Not the the last track from the album is "Small Hours," but uh, this is "Couldn't Love You More." And this is interesting because he recorded this version of it, mm-hmm. and then he re-recorded it for another release in 1981, just several mm-hmm. years later. Mm -hmm. And we're going to listen to the two different versions and talk about them a little bit. So uh, let's, let's, let's listen first to the one that is from one world. Thank you. 
Definitely, I think, has a real bent vocally towards it almost being like an R&B, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, it, it almost feels like he owes a lot in, in uh, the vocal melody to someone like Marvin Gaye here. Yeah, I you can, know? yeah. Um, yeah, which I think is, is, is interesting. And then the, lyrically, this song is so fucking romantic jesus christ yeah yeah uh, i mean yeah his he, I, I mean he wrote incredible love songs i mean it's just one of the all-time great love songs. i mean it's just stunningly beautiful yeah you know the, my favorite line from this song is if you wasted all your time on me i couldn't love you more mm-hmm. you know um why don't you think this was a single i feel like this could have maybe done well for the album i don't know yeah, I mean, I think that's why maybe he re-recorded it. Uh, mm-hmm. That that 1981 album, Glorious Fool, that's the one that was produced by Phil Collins. Uh-huh. And I think that was probably the biggest shot they ever really took at making him um, famous, more, yes. more famous. You yeah. know, like mainstream, mainstream like not mainstream. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think maybe it was too... I mean, although, like, that's... I think it's good that we're ending on this... Uh, song uh, i think it's one of his better known songs he would always play it live mm-hmm. um but then also uh you know this is more indicative of i think the sound that when people think of john martin generally this is kind of the sound people think about uh-huh. it's like the the acoustic folkier sound um but yeah why it wasn't a single i i yeah i mean and the production on it i think is so strange that it once again, I think it really takes it out of out of the realm of like a folk rock song. Yeah, you know? uh, yeah. It's interesting too that he's not, uh, at least to my knowledge, he's not uh, considered a big influence on like dream pop because I mm-hmm. feel like there's sort of a lot uh, of there's a lot of this that sort of seeps into that genre as well. I would yeah. argue. I mean, it's a cliche, but I mean, he was just so ahead of his time in so many different um, genres. I mean, yeah. he just was uh, way ahead of the game. Um, yeah. and Very cool. It, and it's just amazing that, you know, he just the fact that he can write this such an offbeat love song, but it's still so accessible and it's like, yeah. saccharine sweet but doesn't feel corny is just i mean it's just no it feels to his... very genuine yes definitely and it doesn't feel calculated yeah for sure know? yeah for sure uh very passionate and uh very human yep which is awesome so mm-hmm. yeah let's listen to the other version of it which uh you don't like as much and i i don't like it as much either Uh, the other version of the song, but it's so interesting to see an artist continually try to 
reframe what they're doing like under new context. So I think that's, mm-hmm. that's why it's worth giving a little bit of a spin here. For sure. Uh, so here it is. are are really interesting right Mm -hmm. yeah striking this it's just at a bit of a brisker tempo Mm -hmm. and the bass line is so much more emphasized right yeah sort of the big differences but you know it still works yeah i still like it i like it too it just has a little less of a i don't know it has a little less of a sort of a of a strangeness to it you yeah, know? I mean they sh- they shaved off a lot of the edges, and um, I mean on the on the album "Glorious Fool," which is the 1981 album produced by Phil Collins, um, it's uh, the, it's like very much more. You get more of the yacht rock, soft rock, yeah. sound, which um, makes and, sense for Phil Collins' produced record, yeah, yeah. right. And uh, and actually, Eric Clapton played guitar on the on the uh, on the album version, and. Uh, Clapton would play it a lot of time in his live sets too um, but yeah I think it was just and I, I, I still like it it just yeah. um, I think the like airiness of all the songs but especially this song on One World I think just makes it so unique um, yeah. and the, like the, the, the ambience is lost yes that's right yeah there is there's something that's sort of stri- it's there's something that makes it feel a little less intimate mm-hmm, being right. being exactly. uh, put into this into this sort of pop context. Yep. And it never really worked for him. And interestingly enough, something else about One World is that it is the first album of his in his 10-year-long career to chart. Yes. In the uh, UK. In the UK, yes. But to yeah. chart, to chart nevertheless. Right. And you, you know, it it shows that people at the time were beginning to develop a taste for what he was doing. Right. But it only charted for a week and then was gone again. So it just sort of made a little blip, making it definitely one of the more um, underappreciated artists that we've covered on the show. 
I think so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think even in the like underground, you know, even among like underground artists, I still think he's underappreciated. I would be curious. I know in the U.S. absolutely, mm-hmm. um, but even in the U.K., I think like he just never got his due in the same way that even like a Nick Drake got. For you sure, know, people he is deified. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think truly, I think John Martin is. I, I consider John Martin like Nick Drake with ADD. You know, he just like <laughs> yeah. He 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 just went everywhere and did everything. And I mean, he wasn't maybe as hot as Nick Drake. That I think that's part that of it might too. Be a d- yeah, and he didn't totally. die. Yeah, he 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 died uh, in his sixties, so that also yes. didn't help him. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, I think he's just his songs are just as gorgeous. Um, and just as innovative and just as like melodically and harmonically, you know, innovative and interesting as, you know, Nick Drake and John Martin, I think they should be mentioned in the same breath, but for sure, for well, sure. That, that, that's what we're, we're working on right now is, yeah. is making sure people, uh, you know, appreciate John Martin. Yeah. We're working on changing that. Uh, for this episode, I got to give a special shout out to my friend uh, who is a, a British guitarist and uh, comedian named Peter Smith, who sort of on a whim yesterday night, I messaged him over Facebook and I was like, are you a John Martin fan? Because I just had a feeling that he was. <laughs> and then he went into you know, why he loves John Martin so much. Uh, uh-huh. And he is, and this is not a big surprise, mm-hmm. uh, and sort of helped me with my research for this episode a little bit. But, you know, something that's interesting is that I think that he's one of those artists, and Peter said this, Peter in high, was in high school when John Martin died, mm-hmm. and uh, one of his teachers at school knew that Peter and some of his friends were really into... Uh, sort of interesting, uh, you know, non-mainstream guitar stuff. Mm-hmm. So they ended up having a class where he played a lot of John Martin for him, and that's how Peter got into him. Mm. And uh, so it's interesting. I think that even and then, oh, and then Peter said, and this is also I think an interesting aspect to John Martin's sort of continuing underground popularity is Peter used to watch reruns of John Martin. Uh, on the BBC on Old Grey Whistle Test, yeah, which makes a lot of sense. And that Old Grey Whistle Test helped turn a lot of, you know, people who are, who live in the UK onto artists that perhaps weren't even around anymore. Uh, yeah. You know, because they did all these sort of prepackaged themed uh, rerun shows. Mm. Yeah, which I think is is really cool. But still, you know this isn't someone who, if you mention him, uh, you know, within like British culture that everybody would know who he is. No, no. Still. So, so, you know, it's interesting how we all found him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found him through you, <laughs> which is great. I, and, and, and hopefully now everyone will find him. Yeah. Um, to all of our yeah. listeners, you know, who listened to this episode. Yeah. Definitely give one world a listen. And then from there, you know, I would say yeah. might be good just to go through his discography, right? Are Here's there what you do. Here's steps? what you do. Yeah, go All for right. it. 
you can start with One World because you're listening to this podcast. Yes. Then go to Solid Air. You're going to get some more like classic British folk, but he he's still experimenting with the Echoplex and like a lot of the like rhythm box stuff on that. Yeah. You're going to get a little something a little out of left field. Then we're going to take it back into sort of the beginning of his transition from like the 60s folk into like the newer stuff some still more accessible you're going to listen to bless the weather then after that we're you're you're already deep then you go to 1980 grace and danger he's off the rail on that one super sad album but amazingly uh ambient and um like just gorgeous album. Then you're going to take it back to the first album. See where he got his roots. Listen to that. You can really appreciate the evolution of his whole career. You're going to listen to that first album, London Conversation. And then you're going to finish it out with maybe his most experimental uh, album, Inside Out. Oh, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> I love it. And don't listen to anything that came out after 1981 that he did. Just don't. He doesn't. Just forget about it. I keep saying I'll put it in the show notes and then I keep not doing show notes, but this time I will. I'll put it in the show notes. That's the order. That's the official kick the jukebox listening order to get really into him, to do a big deep dive. Yep. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I love it. Oh, Kyle, this has been such a treat. So fun. This has been a really, really fun one. Yeah, I know you, you, you are, head over heels in love with him which is fucking i great. truly am i truly yeah am. and i'm growing to love him as well yes in a, in a big way yep. so yeah you know um thank you to everybody that's been listening to us week after week we've been having a blast doing these and yeah if uh you want to learn more about us you can follow us on all the social media channels you can communicate with us on all that stuff as well uh you know we're just to kick the jukebox at all those places you can you can find us it's pretty easy and uh, my Venmo is at Louis4711 if you want to uh, give, give us some money for the, all the research and care we put into this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kyle, your Venmo is? Kyle-Gordon-2. That's right, Kyle-Gordon-2. Don't give it to Kyle-Gordon-1. No. Don't do it. He doesn't, he's not a member of this exclusive. Wait, podcast. actually, wait, wait, wait. Did I, I think I got my Venmo wrong. Wait, is that what it is? <laughs> Oh, no, no. That's what it is. That's what it is. I'm sorry. I just had a that's awesome. minor brain fart. <laughs> no, you're great. <laughs> yeah. Well, everybody, you know, thanks for tuning in. And we'll be back next week with another deep dive into an album of the week. I'm Louis Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. We will see you around like a record. Kick the jukebox. It's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme, talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah!